Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your chair. Um, and you can open that up to page one, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. And uh, that's where we're going to be. Um, as Davey just said, we are starting a new four-week teaching series on work and rest. And we're really trying to get after what is God's vision for work and rest? What is his intention behind this? So it's, it's our goal that we would dive into God's word and honestly be informed by him on what he thinks about this kind of stuff. And so uh, if you really think about it, this is more of a series about time and how we spend it. Because as I was reflecting on it, uh, when you really break everything down into the categories of work and rest, that's like 98% of our time. So whether you collect a paycheck and work 30 to 40 to 50 to maybe even 60 hours a week, uh, you're spending a lot of your time working. And even if you, if you think of yourself outside of that time, or maybe you're doing a bunch of other work that doesn't pay you anything, maybe you're changing diapers or, or doing something else, but there's a lot of different things that we can do that are still constituted as work. You know, maybe you're landscaping your yard or you're maintaining something or you're cleaning something. A lot of our lives are spent working. And then beyond that, God sets aside an entire day of the week and he calls us to rest. And then hopefully at the end of every day, you're going to sleep at night, right? Realizing I am not God, I have to sleep. He made me so that I, I have to sleep. And so when you really think about it, this is a series about how we spend our time. And so it's very important that we hear God's voice in our lives and have him shape us into the people he's desiring us to be, that we would leverage that time for his kingdom really well, okay? So we're gonna spend two weeks diving into uh, the, the topic of work and what the Bible has to teach us about work. And we're gonna spend two weeks diving into the topic of rest. And tonight we are diving into work. Okay, we're gonna start with work. And this is such a relevant topic for our lives and our day and age because most of us, I, I would think most of us, have very rarely thought about how our faith informs our work or how our faith, our Christian faith, is integrated with our work and really how our work informs our Christianity. Um, a recent Gallup poll, which was taken, uh, and, and it was international in breadth, they, they polled just thousands of people all over the world, and they asked everybody a very broad, open-ended question, and the question was this, what is the thing that you want most? That's a pretty open-ended question. And overwhelmingly in this Gallup poll, the response was this, a good and meaningful job. People all over the world, what is the thing you want most? People said a good and meaningful job. Interestingly enough though, 87% of people in that poll said they feel very disengaged and dissatisfied with their work. That's a, that's a lot of people, okay? When I was in high school, uh, there was a, a comedy, there was a movie that came out, it was very popular. It was called Office Space, okay? I'm not gonna advocate you watch this movie or anything. I, I'm, I'm neutral on this, okay? I'm, I'm not telling you go watch this. But there's this movie called Office Space, and it centers around this character named Peter, okay? And Peter uh, has, is having relationship problems, okay? And so his girlfriend asks him to go see a hypnotherapist. And so he goes with his girlfriend to this hypnotherapist, and while they're at this hypnotherapist, he confesses to this guy that every single day of his life has been worse than the day before. 
And he attaches the reasoning for this to his job. And he proceeds to tell the hypnotherapist that every single day that that guy sees him is now the worst day of his life, okay? It's a very, it's a very pre- depressing life, I mean, but he's attaching this to his work. And so in this uh, job, he goes into work one day, and there's these guys called the Bobs who are sent in from the higher-ups, and they're supposed to interview all the employees in this company and try to figure out what exactly every employee does in this company and to see if they could actually downsize, if they could sort of fire some people and, and clean up a little space in the place. And so he is in an interview with these Bobs, these higher-up people, and he confesses to these guys. He says, Generally, on a day's work, I probably get a good 15 solid minutes of work in. I come in, I daydream, I I play computer games, I do all this stuff, I waste all my time, I probably get a good 15 minutes in of actual work, okay? Ironically, this impresses these guys, it makes no sense. But the movie itself, it revolves around this character and how disengaged and dissatisfied he is in his work and how that affects his life. And the movie plays really well comedically to you as the viewer, I think because many people in the world feel the exact same way as Peter does. I think it's why it's supposed to be funny. Many people in the world are disengaged and dissatisfied with their work. Then if you throw into that as Christians, I think sometimes we tend to be in a place in time where we might be having a crisis of faith in some ways in trying to understand how our faith and our work integrate just on top of finding it even meaningful. And you might be asking yourself, does our work even matter? Does it even really matter? Uh, there's, there's a famous um, author, her name is Dorothy Sayers, and uh, I think like half a century ago or, or somewhere around there, she wrote a famous essay titled, Why Work? And you could find, you can Google this essay and find it for free online, it's a PDF version. And she stated this in her essay. She said, quote, the significant source of crisis in our work comes from the church. So the church has let work and religion become separate departments. She says the church has become this group of people that for a long time have separated the concepts of our faith and our work. I think she's right. And so it would do us well if we could by the power of the Holy Spirit teaching and moving in us to learn to reintegrate our faith in our work if that's something that you haven't thought much about. And what I hope that we will see is that one of the main ways we serve the world and through that and by that, by, by that way serve God is through our work. So we are gonna start in the beginning tonight and we're going to look at Genesis chapters one through three. We're not gonna read the entire thing, but I want us to notice three critical things from these chapters. And so for you note takers, I actually have this on the screen for you. We're gonna see the reason for work. We're gonna see the goal of work. And I want us to see the redeemer of work. So first, the reason for work. It says in Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, we see the Bible 
begin with the declaration of the origin of the earth and who began this whole thing. So we see where the earth and everything came from and where this whole thing started. And we see right away something about God. And that is this, that God is a worker. You see right away from the beginning of your Bibles that God is a worker. He is a creator. He works. He began and we began and everything around us began because God is a worker. He creates and things are without form and void. They aren't yet suitable for things to be birthed and to be shaped out of. And so he gets his anthropomorphic hands in the dirt and he starts creating things. You see this right away. He creates light. He creates land. He then creates seas and vegetables and plants and grass and fruit and then stars and moons, the sun. He creates sea creatures and land creatures and birds and insects. Then on the sixth day, God creates the crown of his creation, the best of all his work. He creates people. He creates you and me, right? And then we see God creates the seven-day week at the end of the creation account. Because after he's seen everything that he's made, after he creates human beings and, and everything else, he looks out and he says, this is very good. And on the seventh day, we see God rests. God works, and then God rests. This is, this is not a point that we should minimize. Okay? This is really important that we do not minimize this point because God, who is holy, who is perfect, who is good, is in his nature a working God. In his nature, he is a working God. He makes things, he shapes things, he brings life. He leaves things better than they are. He's always improving upon things. This, this is important because the idea of work then can't simply be viewed by us as a punishment. Work can't be a punishment to us then but as something that is rooted in, in, instead in the very nature of God himself. Therefore, our work is being done simply because God is a worker. God isn't calling us to do something that he isn't already doing. That's what we see here right out of the gate. Uh, when professional sports were just becoming a thing like half a century ago, right? Uh, things started out, professional athletes became this thing, okay? Coaches at that time didn't really have time to previously have a professional career. So the vast majority, if not all coaches, were not former players. Okay, so coaching was really different no matter what sport you were in. Coaches were viewed more as a boss of some sorts. But in the last two decades, something has risen in popularity, and that is the concept of a player coach. It's, it's, a, it's a coach who has been a former player who's gone through the same sort of rigorous life that an athlete has to go through. Or if they haven't, they're a, play, they're a coach who actually gets off the sidelines and practices and does the very same things that they're asking the athlete to do. And you could see the appeal of this. And a lot of players, they really are drawn to these kinds of coaches. You see more and more of these coaches rising up within the ranks. That's because these coaches have gone through the draft, you know. They've had to deal with the media before. They've had to go through all those same workouts and the rigors of a season. They can empathize with their players. And this is really fascinating and important to these players because 
There's something so powerful of uh, looking at a coach who's barking at you and telling you to do something, knowing that they've done the same thing that they're now asking you to do. See, I think rarely in life do we like people to tell us to do something that they've never even done themselves. There's something wrong about that. It just feels wrong to us as Westerners. So I think there's something really powerful here when you look at the beginning of your Bibles and you see that God is not asking you to do something that he hasn't done nor isn't doing every day. God is the source of the idea of work. It all begins with him because God is a worker. He's a working God. And this is critical to understand when we get down to the part in the narrative where God creates people. Get down to verse 26, it says this in chapter one, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he, what, that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So, God creates people and then it says in verse 28 that the first thing God does after he creates people is what? What does it say in verse 28? He blesses them. He creates people and then he blesses them. How did God bless people? How did he bless humanity? Well, he blessed them with what is now called the first commission. The first commission. He blesses them by giving them the first commission. If, you're, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're probably very familiar with the Great Commission, right? The commission where Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead and appeared to his followers before he ascended into heaven. He said, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize people, right? Remember that? You're probably familiar with that. Well, before the Great Commission that Jesus gave to us as followers, he gave the very first humans the first commission. So there was a commission given to humanity at the very beginning of creation called the first commission. And God says in that commission, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, rule over these things. God essentially says, here's my garden, rule it, cultivate it, make culture. It's essentially what God is saying to his people. This is a blessing, he says. This is a blessing. You catch this. Work is a blessing. Do you, do you see that? Do you view work as a blessing? 
Do you view it as that? Tim Keller has famously said, when he looks at the Bible, okay, and I think he's right, that history began in a garden, and we see that it ends in a city. History begins in a garden, and it will end in a city. And so all of our work, all of our lives is sort of pressing into that place where one day that city will ultimately come in all of its glory and all of its gladness that we see at the end of our Bibles. See, God's purpose from the beginning of creation is that people would be creators and rulers and cultivator of, cultivators of things. We see that. So you see all good work then has dignity and all good work is a participation in the work that God commissioned for Adam and Eve. This is the purpose of God. But more than that, it is a blessing. It's a blessing. You see, work is necessary then in your made an image of Godness, if I could say it that way. Work is necessary for your fulfillment as a human. God didn't put work in the world after the fall. It's not that sin entered the world and all of a sudden God's like, hey, as a punishment, you have to work now. No, he put work into paradise. That's what we see here in our Bibles. God didn't put it in after the fall, he put it into paradise. And so, as we were made here in the image of God, as it says, and if God is a creator, if he is a worker, then we bear God's image by working in creative and redemptive ways. And if you ever watch children, you see this is so instinctive to who we are as humans. I mean, kids all the time are creating things. They're painting things, they're drawing things. They're dreaming up things, they're creating stories. I could have dumpsters full of recyclable paper to show you if I kept everything that my kids gave to me on a daily basis. It is insane, right? It's crazy. Kids just make things. Why do you think Legos are so popular? Kids love Legos. I know adults love Legos too. I've heard that, you know. But still, kids love Legos. They love building things with Legos. Why? Because kids love to just build things. They love to create things. It's so instinctive. It's in our blood. And the reason is, if I could say this way, because it's in God's metaphorical blood. Just a part of who God is, and He's made us in His image. So it's something ingrained in us that is put in the created world in paradise. Work is. But somehow, somehow, when we grow up and we think that work exists all of a sudden as just a means for us to fund ministry, work just exists as a means for us to pay the bills. And all of a sudden, we think those are the reasons why we work. It's just to pay bills. It's just to get by. It's sort of viewed by us and a lot of different people as a necessary evil in life, something that gets in the way of of real life. But just just think for a second. Work must matter. It must. it, It must honor God. It must be good, not only because it's put in paradise here, but just consider the life of Jesus for a moment. Just consider Jesus for a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, spent far more time in his life as a carpenter than he ever did in full-time ministry. We know this, that he only spent a few years of his life, at the end of his life, in full-time ministry, but before this, he was a carpenter's son and grew up in a trade like that. This is how Jesus spent his time, and we knew that he glorified God more than anybody else on the face of this earth that has ever walked this earth. We know that Jesus magnified the Father. We know that Jesus imaged God perfectly. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So work isn't intended to be a burden 
that we must simply endure in life. It's not intended to be an obstacle in us following Christ and enjoying God. It's not intended to simply be a mechanism so that we can make money and fund different ministry endeavors. It is intended to be a blessing from God, though. Work has a goal to it, and we then see that is laid out for us in Genesis chapter 2. In verses 5 through 9 of Genesis chapter 2, we begin to see the goal of work, because in 5 through 9, we see that God makes Adam. We see the creation of the first human. And then in verses 10 through 14, you see the creation of the garden. And so God makes a man, God makes a garden. And then in verse 15, it says this. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God creates the first man. God creates a garden. He takes the man. He puts him in a garden to do what? It says to work it and keep it. He, he places in there to work it and keep it. And this word to work and to keep is, is a Hebrew word, and, and it's the word abad, which is the root word in Hebrew for worship. So you could translate this, that God puts him in the garden to love and to obey God. But it's more correctly translated to work and to keep. But it's this whole idea of God places him in this garden to worship. And, and this is very significant because God here is telling us that one of the primary ways that we love and obey God, one of the primary ways that we worship God is actually through our work. This is what he's placed Adam in the garden to do. We have a problem though, I think. Because a lot of us have reduced worship in our day and age to an emotional state that we attain or that we slip out of in our lives. And so we might come on a Sunday, which these are, these are such important times for us to gather weekly to encourage one another to hear from God's word, to praise God corporately. We need this time. But we often will come to something like this and we're like, oh man, I really worshiped tonight. Worship was great tonight. Worship was not great tonight. And we're communicating the concept of worship and we're equating it to an emotional state of being. Where I feel maybe at some level euphoric about what just happened to me. Or maybe you live your life and you're outside of an environment like this and you say, I really worshiped God today. But you're equating that to your own emotional feelings of how you feel towards God. And we can be very injured by that concept of worship because within that concept of worship, there is no category or place for what's being talked about here in Genesis chapter two. This idea that work is an avenue for worship because how many of you in your work feel euphoric towards God? I would bet there's a lot of you who rarely feel that way because your mind isn't able to meditate in that moment upon just the grandeur and glory of God. And so we could see it as an impediment to our work, but we see here that Adam doesn't worship God by reading the Bible. God, Adam doesn't worship God by praying. Adam doesn't worship God by listening to Hillsong or something. Adam doesn't worship God this way by staying away from a few bad apples or something. He worshiped God by working. That's how he's 
worshiping. He's, he's working and keeping this. He's cultivating and he's gardening the land that God has placed him in to image him. So you see, Genesis 1 and 2 describe for us that at the foundation of worship is loving and obeying God, and that is manifesting itself. When you piece together what's being communicated here, that, that idea of worship is manifesting itself through imaging God, through working, because God is a worker. God is a worker, and he's blessed humanity in this state of paradise by calling us to work and in our working to image him. So we see here in Genesis 1 and 2 that we worship God by imaging him and by way of imaging him, displaying his worth, his value, his beauty, his glory to the world around us. Work is an expression through you of God's creative and restorative activity in the world. We see God taking things and leaving them better than they were before. He's constantly developing. He's constantly creating and making things good. So we image God by doing good work that leaves things better than where we found them. Just take music for an example. Just take music. Okay, what is music? Music's wonderful, right? Love music. All music is is taking raw materials that God has created. It's taking sounds and word. It's taking sounds and language. And a person who's been gifted by God to understand music, they place that together. They, they take those things and they create an order out of them. They create a rhythm out of those things. They set those raw materials on a similar trajectory to where when you hear music that has been put together and played by somebody who God has made and intended, right, to play music. Some of you, God has not made you or intended you to do that, right? It might not sound that great, but for people like Brent or somebody else, right, God has gifted you in a certain sense to put those raw materials together and set those things on a trajectory, and music can then be what? Powerful. We all, are, we all could testify to the power of music. That someone's created something and it just moves your soul or it might even in some ways be a means by which you experience some form of healing or, or you're, something's communicated to you in a way that you just really need to have it communicated to you. It, it's a very powerful thing. Or we could take the concept of maintenance work. Just take maintenance work. Uh, the previous church that I, I was at before we started this church had a man who worked uh, in maintenance. And this guy was amazing. This guy, some of you guys know him, he couldn't uh, read. And so he taught himself to read by handwriting out the Bible, okay? He, I, last time I saw him, he was working on his third translation of the Bible. Okay, this guy has taught himself to read by handwriting the Bible. Okay, this is crazy. And I saw him one day. This guy is such a faithful, sacrificial, amazing man. And one day I remember just saying to him, man, thank you so much, Chester, for all that you do. For all that you do around here, thank you so much. You're such an important part of our community. And I, I remember him saying to me, oh, I just, Josh, I just push a broom. And I remember responding to him, Chester, you do not just push a broom, okay? And I'm thinking in my mind, what would the world be like if there were no maintenance people, if there were no sanitation workers, if there were no janitors? Just think about what the world would be like It'd be an icky place and you wouldn't want to live in it, really. Just think about this for a minute. Martin Luther once said, quote, the humblest sweeping maid, sweeping for the glory of God, 
is infused with as much dignity as the greatest preacher in the world. He said the humblest maid sweeping for the glory of God is infused with as much dignity as the greatest preacher in the world. Famously, there was a story uh, about the Kennedy Space Center. And uh, during the time in our history where they were about ready to launch the first rocket to the moon, there was all, it was a big deal, you know. So all these reporters went down to the Kennedy Space Center and they're interviewing all these people about this great event of launching a rocket to the moon. And one reporter entered, uh, inter entered, interviewed a janitor and didn't know it was a janitor and said, hey, what do you do around here? What is it that you do around here? And he famously responded by saying this. He said, I'm here to launch a rocket. They interviewed the janitor, what are you doing around here? He said, I'm, I'm here to launch a rocket. He saw what he was doing in his sanitation work as contributing to the whole of the big picture of what was happening there. I think that's, that's very biblical to what was happening here in, our, in, in the Bible, in God's view of work. See, the New Testament describes God's people, describes the church as a body. And all of us are a part of this body of Christ if you are a Christian. And it's our goal to be a body that faithfully reflects the image of Jesus to the world. And it's said in different points in the New Testament, it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The elbow can't even say to itself, I am not needed at all. Right? That, that's not God's view of the church. Every good and God-imaging vocation is essential in pressing that garden into the city that it must and that it will become someday. I mean, just, just let your imaginations live here for a second. Just let it live here for a moment, okay? Mothers, you worship God by imaging the nurture of God. Educators, you worship God by imaging the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Health professionals and counselors, you image God by imaging his healing power and vision. If you're in fashion or grooming industries or something, you worship God by imaging the beauty of God. If you're a nonprofit worker, by imaging the mercy of God and the self-giving nature of God. If you're in marketing, you image God through the evangelistic nature of God. If you're a sanit sanitation worker, you worship God by imaging the purity of God. If you're an artist, by imaging the creativity of God. If you're an athlete, the vigor and the discipline of God. If you're a public official or a CEO, you, you image the rule of God. Or if you're an accountant, God's orderliness. Or a barista, you're imaging God's hospitality. Right, we, could, we could have the list go on and on. See, when we are exercising the goal of work, which is worshiping God by imaging him, when we are engaged in creative work that brings new goods, new ideas, new sights, and new sounds into the world, or if we're engaged in redemptive work that brings restoration and healing to broken people, places, and things, this is all a part, this is an act, this is an avenue for worship of imaging God. Because God is a creator and a redeemer, and therefore every kind of creative or redemptive vocation is an extension of his work around the world. So we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the goal of work is worship by imaging God to the world around us through our work. And we've also seen that the reason for work is that God is a worker and he has made you in his image. But there is a problem though. 
And it starts in chapter three. But I want us to see that in the midst of this problem that seems to change some things related to our work, we immediately, we immediately see the hope of a redeemer of work that God promises. Now, we won't get into this extensively. Instead, we're going to spend a little bit more time in this in a couple of weeks. But this is what's happening here. And you probably are familiar with this story. Everything's perfect. It's paradise. And all of a sudden, Adam and Eve are tempted by a serpent. And they decide that, that God is holding out on them. And they want to be a little bit more like God. And so they begin to not trust God. And they live in a way that God has not asked them to live. So sin enters the world, brokenness enters the world. A, a pastor named John Orberg, I love the way he says this. He says, the greatest difference between you and God is that God does not think he's you. So the greatest difference between you and God is that God does not think he's you, and that's exactly what's happening here. People want to be like God, it says. So there's a problem, and we see it exude itself here, and then in starting in verse 14, God responds. He, he sort of gives out this word of what's going to happen now, and he says to the serpent who tempts them, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there's a problem, and this problem comes to us by the mouth of God as a result of sin entering into paradise. And the problem is that the world is now broken, and therefore Adam's work and Eve's work will now be more difficult and will often come with the experience of dissatisfaction in their work. It, this, is, this is why you have people who now climb to the top of the, the ladder that they're trying to get to the top of in their work, and they get to the top and all of a sudden they, they're left wanting more. They're left feeling dissatisfied. I mean, there's people in the world like Tom Brady quarterback of the New England Patriots, who's now won four Super Bowls. He's been to the very top. Five Super Bowls. Thank you, Dawson. Yeah, five Super Bowls. That, that, that's, a, that's a big achievement. No, it is. And when he's at interviewed, he responds with things like this. It's just not enough. It just never feels like enough. You see, work can cause us to think that if I can just achieve that, if I can just get there, then I'll be satisfied. And so we envision and dream more than we can often accomplish, and that leaves us feeling like we're sometimes just like a hamster on a wheel, just so dissatisfied and tired from all the toil of our work. That's how work can often feel towards us. I don't know if you guys are familiar, familiar with the old myth about Sisyphus. You know this? Here's an... If, 
There's a very old uh, depiction found somewhere. Not that graphic, but something else that Jacob will put up here. This is Sisyphus, okay? He did something really bad, apparently. And his punishment by the gods was that he had to push this huge boulder up a mountain. And every time he would get close to the top of the mountain or the hill, it would roll back onto him and flatten him and roll all the way to the bottom, and so he'd have to keep doing that. And this was his literal hell. This is what he was going to do for all eternity, just keep trying to roll the boulder up and down the hill and never actually accomplish what he was hoping to accomplish. He would never actually experience what he wanted to experience. It would never be complete. I think in a real sense, when it comes to work in our lives, we feel like Sisyphus, we feel like we're pushing this metaphorical boulder up this hill and it just often rolls back and flattens us and we start all over again. It's never satisfying. We never feel like we're actually complete and full in what we're experiencing or going after in our lives. I think it's all as a result of the fall here in Genesis. Work can feel like we are Sisyphus. And I think that's why you have 87% of people in the world saying they're dissatisfied in their work. But like I said, we have the first mention here in this passage of a future redeemer and a future restorer in these verses. And you see it in verse 15 of chapter 3. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's God talking to the serpent. He's talking to Satan here. He's saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and this woman's offspring. And her offspring, uh, you will bruise his heel and her offspring will bruise your head. So his offspring will have his heel bruised by this devilish serpent. But someone would come as an offspring from this woman who would bruise this head of this devilish serpent. Well, the offspring that is being promised here is none other than the one who the apostle John wrote about in John chapter one, And he was writing John chapter 1, referring to Genesis chapter 1, stating that this offspring is the Word made flesh. He writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. This offspring that Genesis chapter 3 is referring to that's going to come from this woman was the Word. This offspring is the Word made flesh. Jesus. That's what this is referring to. And so we see something so critical as we are launched out of the toil of work in Genesis chapter 3. We see something that really gives us such meaning and hope in our work as you wake up tomorrow and head into your workplace. There is something within the gospel account, within the grand story of the Bible that changes things. There's something that we must cling to. There's something that was achieved for us when the offspring of the woman, Jesus, crushed the head of the serpent, Satan, and it's described for us so beautifully in Ephesians chapter two. This will be on the screen, it says this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is what's offered to you because of what is foretold in Genesis chapter three. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
You see, although the curse came and ruined the paradise that God made and put between man and woman in, in the work and worship and the way that we image God through our work, he promised, he promised to send a redeemer and he sent none other as a redeemer than Jesus, the son of God himself. And he came and did the work that we could never do. He came and worked in a way that you could never work. He lived a perfect life of love and obedience towards God. He imaged God perfectly. And he worked in a way that you have never worked. He worked on your behalf, enduring the justice of God on the cross for you. And he worked on our behalf by bruising the head of Satan, by rising from the dead, and thereby defeating your sin and death, and securing for you a new identity that's listed out for you on this screen, that you now are God's workmanship. He secured for you an identity that you are God's workmanship. Ephesians says that because of the gospel, anybody who has trusted in Jesus, we are now God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's because of the work of Jesus on our behalf that we now have a new identity as God's workmanship, and now we live out of that new identity given to us by God to do good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. See, Jesus became the redeemer of our work because we now can work and not feel the weight of our work like in a way that we see on the screen in Sisyphus' life. We can now work freed from that burden in a certain sense. We can now work and image God and worship him by doing creative and redemptive work because the gospel message announces to us a new identity that we have in Christ that we are not primarily workers. We are primarily God's workmanship. And I promise you, I promise you that if you wake up tomorrow morning and you breathe in and out the grace of God for you in the gospel, and you realize that you have this new identity that you're now wrapped up in, that you are God's workmanship, that you are not primarily a worker now searching for an identity through your work, but you are God's workmanship, that God has achieved that for you in Jesus, you will view your work tomorrow very differently you will begin to exemplify this first commission given to us by God in a whole new way. Because the redeemer of work, Jesus, whatever our work is now, we can do it with all our hearts, knowing that we are doing it towards Jesus. We are serving Jesus through our work. We now work not to get a blessing from God. We work because we have been blessed by God. We work not to try to like, earn approval from other people in our lives or try to earn approval from God, but we work because we've already been approved of in Christ who completed all the necessary work on our, on our behalf. So God is a worker and therefore we experience the blessing of work. The goal of work is worship by imaging God to the world around us through our work. If you guys are in Christ, if you have put your faith in him, you are God's workmanship. Your identity is not in your work. And if you believe that tomorrow morning, you will be flung out all over the city, living out this first commission 
with a whole new perspective. You really will. Let's pray. God, we 